If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And what we're going to do, we're, we're going to jump right in this morning. We are in our, our third sermon of our first I am statement. And you may recall a few weeks ago, we launched a new series of messages working our way through seven times in the Gospel of John where Jesus identifies himself with the phrase, I am. And we noted the rich and profound language that Jesus uses in order to identify uh, himself in his full divinity. I am full divinity. Also in his saving work, each of the seven I am statements tells us something then about the saving work of Christ And then it also promises us the ongoing ministry of Christ and that our salvation is not just something that we need at a a one-time moment, but Christ continues to to nourish us and sustain us for, for the life he's called us to live. So we're looking at these seven I am statements, and we've been in the first one. John 6 records for us the first instance of the seven where Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. And so it is fitting then that as we conclude this third statement that we will then turn our attention to taking of the elements of the Lord's Supper together. I have always found this to be one of the profound realities among the many that that we find in the elements of the Lord's Supper. That that rather than continue to, to have us take of the Passover... It's tricky to pass plates full of roasted lamb, all right? That's trickier. And then unleavened bread and bitter herbs that that in order then to bring out the richness of our salvation, Jesus only needed to give us two elements, bread and a cup. Identifying for us then not only what he has done and and again, his, his work and a body that was crucified and blood that was shed, but also in giving us elements that, that we ingest, that we, that we eat, and, and identifying that which was necessary in order to sustain life. And so even eating of these elements is a reminder to us of these essential truths that we are learning as we go through these I am statements. So let's remind ourselves of where we were, and then, then as we take a few minutes and finish this up, then we will turn our attention to gathering around the Lord's table together. So John chapter 6, verses 22 through 71, Jesus is going to use the imagery of bread to assert that he is the only means to true life. And in order to have life in any form, whether for it to begin, to be sustained, or it to be eternal, I require Christ. And we only enjoy the fullness of Jesus' saving work when we understand how he is the bread of life. So looking at two critical aspects of this. First is the bread of life. Jesus saves our life. Jesus saves our life. And so looking at this interchange, Jesus has with a, with a significant group of followers, by the way. We know many of these are the same folks that had been fed bread and fish, as we noted, 20,000 of them fed. And so the day following that great event, beginning in verse 22, Jesus has this exchange with these followers. They want more bread, and Jesus very clearly chastises them for missing the point. And in so doing, really gives us at least three important revelations about Christ. 
One, Jesus is necessary for life, and we've already looked at two of these three. Jesus is necessary for life. Jesus is sufficient for salvation. And then number three, and this is a blank to fill in if you want to fill in blanks in your notes. Jesus is the guarantee of salvation. So let's pick up again where we left off from last week. Verse 35 is kind of the central verse. This is where Jesus utters the statement. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So by the way, that again emphasizes what we talked about last week. Jesus is sufficient. He doesn't say, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will really enjoy a good meal 85% of the time. Come to me and every other day, I've got what you need. Every other day, other than that, you've got to fill in the, the rest, all right? In other words, that whole thing would have been much different if Jesus had said, I'll meet you halfway. I'll do my part. You do your part. But aren't we grateful that's not what he says? <laughs> Can you imagine what this would be like if, in fact, that was the case? No, he says, now I am the bread of life, and those who come to me shall never hunger and never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Remember, they wanted another sign. They wanted more manna. They wanted a a Moses-like kind of thing where God gave manna six days a week, twice on Friday, all right, and did it for 40 years to sustain two million people. I guess 20,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish wasn't enough for them. They want a bigger sign. But Jesus chastises them for this and says, look, you all have missed the point even of that event. I, I am what you need. You see me, yet you do not believe. But then notice what he says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So so, so Jesus emphasizes a principal point here in God's saving work. He's saying, I am the bread of life, and those who enjoy the benefits of the bread of life are those whom God has given to me. And he emphasizes something really important. All that the Father gives will come. Notice again that language then of a guarantee. God delivers none unto Christ to be saved that do not get saved. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I won't cast them out. And then he says, so this is the will of the Father. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, Jesus' words are really straightforward here. And and, and it just reinforces fundamental truths about how God saves us in Christ. The work of salvation belongs to God. It is the will of God to save whom he wills to save. And those who will be saved will be saved. Jesus says, I lose none of them. Nothing can be done 
that would then cause me to lose anyone that has been brought to me. I will raise them up on the last day. And I want to emphasize this. Jesus is clear here to emphasize this is the will of God. Jesus is saying, this is not my plan I've concocted or come up with. Yes, he is the second person of the Trinity. Nonetheless, the plan belongs with the Father. Jesus said, I've come to do his will. But then you also note that verse in verse 40 where he says, and so those who believe in me will have everlasting life. Now, you can tell that the crowd understands what he's getting at least to some degree. If you ever want to know, are they picking up on what Jesus is saying? Like when he makes these big, bold claims, like these I am statements, or when he chastises the people or chastises the religious leaders, do they get it? Yeah. I mean, not completely, but at least in some way, because notice what it says in verse 41. The Jews then complained about him. That's often your sure sign reading the Gospels that Jesus has at least gotten through. Now, they're not going to fully understand, but they know he's saying something radical. This is not like every other rabbi roaming around the countryside, which, by the way, there were more of. There were. Jesus is not like them. Notice what they're complaining about, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So they know what he's claiming, but here's here's what this is running up against. Verse 42, and they said to him, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? I mean, in one sense, it's a good question, right? What are they saying? We know your mama and daddy. That's what they're saying. We know Joseph, we know Mary. You got this whole coming down from heaven thing going on. Um, That doesn't seem to make much sense. So again, I love how Jesus is not winsome or smooth. He's, He's not going to kind of, you know, massage their delicate snowflakiness, all right? He's not going to do that. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. You guys missed it. Stop complaining. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who comes has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He who has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I shall give is my flesh, and I shall give for the life of the world. So again, Jesus clarifies what he's saying. I'm not sure they're still going to get it in full, but he is emphasizing a fundamental principle about himself. That, that, again, he is necessary for salvation, he is sufficient, but he himself is the guarantee of it. 
all that God brings to Christ will be saved. Now, here we go. Some of you understand what I mean when I say that, right? And some of you have questions about it. Because then this gets into words. Are you ready? You ready for these words? Yes? Are you sure? Okay. Election. Uh Uh-oh. Predestination. Oh, boy. (laughs) What's he doing now? Do you know what time it is? We still have to take the Lord's Supper. Is he ready to do this? Yes, thank you. Appreciate the vote of confidence from two of you. All right, yes. See, this does address an issue I've addressed before. So really, this won't take me very long. Because I, I think the text speaks. And I think it speaks with a clarity. But don't misunderstand that. Just because it speaks with a clarity, that doesn't mean there's not still some mystery. There is a clarity here in what Jesus says. Only those that God draws unto Christ will be saved, and those, all of them, all of them that are drawn unto Christ will be saved. So I, I believe that to be true. I, I believe salvation is, belongs in the will of God. I think God wills it. Now, so I, so I know what some are saying, well, but pastor, it also says in the text, they need to believe in Jesus. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yes, I believe salvation is the result of a sovereign God accomplishing his will as he sees fit. Yet at the same time, I believe humans are responsible to believe the gospel. How? Because. How's that for an answer, right? It's, it's the classic dad answer. And it's not coming from me, by the way, all right? How, why? How? Wait, what? What? How, how are you going to do? Because he said so. And that's enough. That is sufficient for me. It is clear. And I believe these things. And I trust how God works in saving people. And I believe God is in the business of saving people. And what I think we end up missing here, because here's what often happens. If I go down this road too much more, then then you end up playing, you know, dueling banjo Bible verse edition in your mind. You know what I mean? Like, so I come up with mine, you come up with yours. We recognize that's a really dangerous proposition because that means then that we suggest one verse thwarts another. We don't really believe that, but sometimes that's how we talk about these things. Truth is, I believe these things are compatible. I believe God has determined the end and at the same time the means to the end. God will save all whom he wills to save. All who are brought unto Christ will be saved. Jesus said, I will not lose one single one of them. Yet at the same time, for all these people he's talking to, he's calling on them to believe. God has determined the end. He's also determined the means to the end. God will save, and at the same time, he holds us responsible for believing. This, by the way, does have a term It's called compatibilism. If you want to write that down, if not, you want to forget about it, great. All right, you can. But I think here's what happens. Again, in our our push to want to reconcile all these things where I believe we hit the wall of revelation, as I call it, meaning the wall of what God has revealed to us, all right? 
where we run up against it, and I'm not going to tie off all of the ends beautifully and perfectly. It is clear, yet it is still a mystery. Here's what I think happens. In our desire to want to understand, which can be selfish if we're not careful, we miss what Jesus is saying. We, we miss the fact that Jesus is saying, not only do I give you life, not only am I necessary for life, and I am sufficient for life, but in me, that life is guaranteed forever. That's what he's saying. He's saying, not only did I not, not only did I not play a part in saving myself, I can't play a part in forfeiting it either. That those that God saves, he saves forever. And this is a beautiful truth. To guarantee Christ will raise up who? All that God has delivered unto him. All of them. Now, if you have confessed faith in Christ, understand that then is the promise that is afforded to you. you your salvation is now and forever. To those who are here who perhaps have never trusted in Christ, I still, in full theological and biblical confidence, appeal to you to confess your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him who died on the cross and rose from the dead and be saved. And that if you do just that, then you will be saved. In full confidence do I preach that and proclaim that. And know that God is able to save. That, by the way, again, is good news. It is good news to think I don't have to contribute something of my own in order to get saved. Because the truth is, the more I read about the Bible and read the Bible and understand theology and understand myself, what could a man dead in his trespasses possibly offer to a holy God? Nothing. That's, by the way, why they call his grace amazing. That's why it's amazing. Not because there was some little flash of light God saw in you and thought, yeah, these worthy to bring into my house. Yeah, that's the one that I want. It's because God knew exactly what you were. God knows exactly what I am. He saved me anyway. And he doesn't expect me then, after saving me, he doesn't then leave me to my own devices and say, all right, son, I gave you life now you better hold on to it with every fiber of your being. Now the truth is, it is Christ that continues to give me life. He is the guarantee of it. Now then this leads to number two. And so this is the second little bit, and this will then transition us into taking of the elements together. And that is that Jesus nourishes our life. He nourishes our life. Now notice how he goes on to talk about this. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's the living Father sent me. 
I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus goes on to give this illustration. I mean, he really adds, pardon the pun, he adds some meat to this illustration, all right? I know that was a bad one. Okay. Because now, because now what does he say? He says, not only am I the bread of life, but now you've got to eat this bread. Not, not just believe. He says, eat. You've got to eat the bread. You've got to eat my flesh. You've got to drink my, my blood. Now let's go ahead and address really clearly here. I, I'm, I'm assuming everybody knows you walked into a Baptist church this morning, right? It's in the name, okay? So let me tell you what's not happening. We're not cannibalizing Jesus. This does not mean that, that, that I will be able to transform the bread into actual body and the cup into actual blood. Now, we recognize Jesus is intentionally be, being vivid in the graphic illustration that he's giving. In other words, what he's saying is, look, to, to believe is more than just some kind of intellectual assent to the facts. Furthermore, that what is necessary for me in order to have life is the ongoing presence of Christ in my life. I have to eat of the bread and I have to drink of the blood. I have to eat of the flesh and drink of the blood in order to have life. Meaning I have to take him in. And he even says this in this passage, right? I in him and he is in me. That's what he means. In fact, the next passage, he's going he's gonna to make it clear. I'm talking about spiritual things here. So we're not talking about these elements transforming. At the same time, we do not want this to be robbed of its power. I do believe there is a unique way in which Christ is present when God's people take of the bread and drink of the cup. I don't think it's literally becoming his body and his blood, but I do think this matters uniquely to Christ. And that when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are saying something. Not only all the other points that we've already talked about, but we are saying, I continue to need Christ for ongoing life. He nourishes. Notice how that is the kind of the, the emphasis of the passage. This really does lend itself for us to think about how this isn't just a one-time partaking. In fact, you could think of it this way. How many of you over the last week have only eaten one meal? Oh, oh uh, two meals. Over the last week, two meals. Three? Some of you are trying to count up in your head now, right? How many of you have already eaten more than once this morning, okay? In other words, we recognize we don't just need to eat one time. In fact, Think about the biggest meals you've ever had, right? Think about those Thanksgiving gatherings, or maybe you've gone to the buffet and you're going to get your money's worth, all right? You ever push back from that table? I mean, you wore the right pants, just to make sure, all right? You push back from that table, and what do you think? I could never eat again until somebody says, would you like some pie with that? I think I can fit it. Or then you walk away from that thinking, oh, I don't think I'll ever eat again. Until the smell of bacon and cinnamon rolls in the morning comes wafting your way and you think, yeah, I think I can eat that, right? In other words, we recognize eating is not just a one and done kind of thing. I continue to require 
Christ's presence. I'm guaranteed of that presence. That's good news. But I also still need it because Christ nourishes me. And so this is why, one of the reasons why I think the the meal, taking of the Lord's Supper together is so profound because that means on a regular basis we, we pass these elements. We are confessing together when we do this, by the way. We are confessing that we are only saved because Jesus has saved us. We, we are confessing that we are then saved forever because Jesus saves us forever. We are confessing that to live life is to live in submission to Christ. We are confessing there's an ongoing need for Jesus. As you eat of the bread, you drink of the cup, you remember. You remember a work that was accomplished for you that has ongoing daily, hourly, secondly benefits for you, right? So it is a profound moment to take of the elements together. And so this is how we turn now. We turn our attention to taking of the bread and drinking of the cup. And we are reminded of a body that was broken for us and blood that was shed. I encourage you then as the plates are passed, that you would use that as an opportunity. An opportunity to... to to meditate on the glorious truths of the saving work of Christ, Christ being your life. He is in you and you are in him. Being grateful for a work that he accomplished that you could not do for yourself. And let it be an opportunity where we again surrender ourselves to the life of Christ, to living in the fullness of the salvation that's been given to us. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you now for the opportunity we have as we turn to taking of these elements together. We confess our unworthiness, and we are grateful that you have made us worthy in Christ. We confess our sinfulness, and we confess that in Christ, our sin has been washed and purged, and we have been made whiter than snow. We confess motives and selfishness and and, and susceptibility to sin and temptation, and we confess that in Christ we are made right with you and can be brought back into fellowship because of the glorious saving work of our Savior. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to this moment to do it rightly and soberly as we reflect on so great a salvation, remembering our Savior, the bread of life, he who is necessary, sufficient, and guarantees and then nourishes us as your people. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This time I'd ask the deacons who will be serving us if they'd make their way forward. At the same time as these men come forward and prepare to take, help us take of the elements together, I do want to invite all who are believers in Jesus Christ to partake of the elements with us. Uh, even if you are not a member of Tabernacle Baptist Church, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are in good standing with his church, Uh, then I invite you to join us as brothers and sisters in Christ as we take of the elements, Christ's body and his blood, bread and cup for the salvation of our souls.